This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, a slight detour away from hockey talk today, but when someone like the Iron Sheik passes away, you spend time talking about him. He's someone that uh, jumped off the pages of pro wrestling and into pop culture very much, whether it was his social media Twitter feed, whether it was appearances on the Howard Stern Show, the Iron Sheik was certainly larger than life. Um, and perhaps the best authority to talk about the life and times of career, the Iron Sheik is a longtime editor of the Wrestling Observer newsletter, The Industry Standard, and has been for decades. He's Dave Meltzer, and he joins me now. Dave, how are you today? Um, it's kind of a weird day because, you know, you kind of wake up to that news and it makes it a sad day. Uh, it, it really does. And watching the tributes pour in from, from all corners of not just the wrestling world, but you know, sports world, entertainment, all over, you know, in the, I just finished, you know, reading Mick Foley's, you know, lovely uh, tribute to, to Iron Sheik as well. And then, you know, Lance uh, Evers just uh, put up a, a photo of, of him and Iron Sheik, like it is trending immediately on, on Twitter. Um, when you look back at the Iron Sheik, like what was it about him that you think captured the imagination, not just of, of pro wrestling fans, but like I, like I mentioned, like he was he was bigger than pro wrestling, even though, you know, he wasn't Hulk Hogan, he wasn't Ric Flair, he wasn't The Rock. What was it about the Iron Sheik that, you know, attracted people right almost right away? You know, I mean, it's a funny thing because a lot of it was uh, right place, right time. I mean, with, um, you know, the um, Iranian hostage crisis and him being from Iran made him a super heel to the point almost to where the promotions, and a lot of promotions tried to play it down because he was getting so much heat. This would be like in the late 70s um, and early, I guess, maybe early 80s. But um, so that was kind of where his, you know, and he, he was, a, he was a, a great amateur wrestler. But um, his, his like, uh, he broke through during that period. And then after wrestling, you know, it was just his, his kind of, crazy speaking and he would go on the shows and just say wacky things and um people liked you know he just kind of people kind of gravitated towards it you know brian blair was his whipping boy and things like that and um you know i think that that's what kind of kept his name alive long after he retired from wrestling you know i um the the first time i saw him on television like i was really lucky growing up um uh, saturday afternoons were, was a bonanza uh, for for television in southwestern Ontario at noon we had AWA wrestling um, uh, out of Winnipeg at one o'clock we had Maple Leaf wrestling at two o'clock it was Mid Atlantic uh, three o'clock was Roller Derby then I think four o'clock was the Al Tomko promotion mm. out west but nonetheless uh, Mid Atlantic at two o'clock Eastern uh, was fantastic and that's where I first got to see you know Ric Flair and Mass Superstar and Ricky Steamboat etc and then one week. This guy popped up swinging these Persian clubs. I think he was with Paul Jones at the time. Um, and then he had, you know, this this wonderful and and bloody feud with Angelo Ma- Angelo Mosca at Maple Leaf Gardens over the over the Canadian heavyweight title. Um, he just sort of popped on the scene, and to, to your point, was instant heat. And the, the one thing that I think was obvious to everyone right away, and you mentioned the the amateur credentials, this guy could really work. Like, th- th- this yeah. guy was, when you look at, like, the standard of professional wrestling, like, Dave, you know better than anyone else, he was an excellent wrestler. Not just wrestler, but just he, he um, it's it's like he he had a real sense of timing as far as being a heel that was tremendous, but um, athletically, like, you know, he was, for the standard of the guys in that era, he was, uh, you know, top-tier a- 
athlete, and you could see it in the ring, his conditioning and his movement. And, of course, you know, from, from, the, um, from the amateur world, his, his actual wrestling itself was great. And he had the ability to, um, you know, um, I, guess, I guess you could say, like, um, have a great match with a variety of different people. Like, you know, you mentioned Mosca, you know, who was a very different type of wrestler than, mm-hmm. say, Jimmy Snuka, you know, who I remember first seeing the Iron Sheik and Jimmy Snuka in stuff from Oregon, and they were, like, so far ahead of their time. You know, this is, like, mid-'70s, late-'70s. And, um, you know, even when he started and he was a much smaller guy, athletically he just was, was, you know, you could just see he was, you know, one of those real superior athletes, which people, I think, um, later in his career, I don't know that people really knew. I think that they just saw him as kind of like a comedy Mm -hmm. super heel. Yeah. You know, I, I am curious as well. And listen, uh, you mentioned, you know, the, um, uh, the hostage situation uh, in Iran um, in the late 70s, early 80s, and that was instant heat for, for Iron Sheik. And I am curious about, you know, the, the decision of making Iron Sheik that transition champion in the WWF between Bob Backlund. Somehow they had to get it to Hulk Hogan. Now, Hogan, as we all know, whether it was the, the Rocky movie, Thunderlips, I mean, he became just like a mega star and huge draw. And they needed a transition champion to get the belt on to Hogan. Um, they chose the Iron Sheik, uh, and I, I think we look back on it and, and we say, you know, Hogan really needed a big villain for that first championship. I needed to beat someone uh, who, uh, who could play the super heel, and that was the Iron Sheik. I've always been curious. Do you know if there was anybody else on the roster at that time that they considered, or was Iron Sheik just the obvious one they had to use as a transition between Backlund and Hogan? Well, the interesting one is is that at the time, Backlund was feuding with the mass superstar, so in, in so that was his main feud. But they did the match with the Sheik, and I think that part of it was is that uh, Backlund was very you know Backlund would, was very willing to lose to the Sheik because the Sheik was real. But more importantly, I think from a Vince McMahon standpoint, is that Hogan was going to be marketed as All American Superhero. And beating Mass Superstar would have been yeah. fine and good, but the Sheik was a much better foil at the time for a Hogan win, even though Superstar was the top heel. So if there was another choice at the time, it would have been Superstar, but I really never heard it considered strongly. It was always like the Sheik made the most sense, mm-hmm. both for Backlund and for Hogan, so that was the direction they went. What was his reputation like amongst the other wrestlers? I mean, I know this is this is wrestling, and you know guys have heat with one another, and this guy doesn't like that guy, and this relationship is is prickly, and you know on a day like this, we're just seeing an outpouring of of love and respect from from all corners. And if you're just joining us, we're talking to Dave Meltzer from the Wrestling Observer Newsletter on the passing of the Iron Sheik. It just seems as if it's you know just an outpouring of love. Uh, towards the uh, the now late Iron Sheik, but what was his relationship like with a lot of the other boys in the room? I mean, it just depended on on the situation, you know. I mean, he, um, you know, he was very well respected for being real and for for the fact that he was a, yeah. a major star. You know, I mean, he definitely had you know drug issues and things like that that um, you know everybody knew about. I think uh, Vince McMahon, I think it was, or once even joked to me like you know he was he set the record for the most times being fired by WWF, and they liked him because he was you know a character <laughs> that was over. But there were just so many times that they had yeah. to get rid of him as well, and. Um, you know, so you know he had that. I think the, you know one of the one of the stories that uh, you know is 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 a true story is that when Hogan was going to win the title in Madison Square Garden, you know um, Vern Gagne 
offered Sheik $75,000 to break his leg, figuring that that would ruin Vince's expansion. And, you know, Sheik probably, if, if he wanted to, could have done it if he, you know, um, you know, just because you leave your body open and everything. And obviously he didn't do it. It would have been the most unprofessional yeah. thing in the world to do. But um, that does sort of tell you, number one, how um, Vern thought of him and also how Vern, you know, was thinking about a wrestling war that was impending. You know, there was um, who there was another wasn't there another promoter that who tried to sabotage the first WrestleMania by paying Bruiser Brody to jump the rail and beat up Hogan on the way to the ring as well. Just just as a side, am I am I, am I misremembering or was that actually a thing too, Dave? Um, yeah, I mean that wasn't as serious as the Burn one, but it was kind of thrown to Brody at one point, but it was nothing he even considered. But yeah, that story was uh, that that story's true too. Yeah. Um, but actually, I think it, it, it might it might have been it might have been Mr. It might have been Mr. T and not Hogan that they wanted him to attack, though. Ah, okay. I'd, I'd never heard that uh, that that wrinkle to that story uh, um, before. Uh, we're talking about the passing of the Iron Sheik, Dave. A couple more moments with you. Um, when you look back on his career, um, what what stands out to you? Are there matches? Are there moments? Are there interviews? Um, relationships he had. I always loved his stand-ups with, uh, with Gene Okerlund. Uh, what, what's going to stand yeah, was, out to you when you look back I, on his career? Yeah, yeah, Gene Mean and everything, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. Um, I think the, 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 you know, I mean, like, the first memory I always have with, with Sheik is, is, you know, him with the flag and Volkov with the, Nikolai Volkov with the flag and him saluting and Volkov yeah. singing the national anthem. I think that's what they were most remembered for. I mean, they were tag team champions and, um, you know, very famous tag team champions, not the greatest in the ring by that point, because Nikolai was was not the greatest. But, um, you know, they um, you know, I mean, and just the, 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 the character in the cartoon and everything like that. I just remember him as a character. But, you know, even even, you know, uh, Cosro Viziri, you know, coming out of uh, the amateur ranks to, in Vern Gagne's camp and the stories with when Billy Robinson dislocated his hip because Cosro was talking about how if it was real, he could beat Billy Robinson and he could beat Vern Gagne, and Billy got tired of hearing it as his coach. And, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's all, there's, you know, so, so you know, I mean, so it just all of the, the, the you know, I mean, his, his promo style and everything like that, I think, was just so unique and everything like that. And just, you know, walking to the ring with that, waving that flag and having garbage thrown at him in all those cities, you know, was probably some of the most memorable <laughs> stuff as well. Considered a badge of honor um, by Shiki. Uh, listen, thanks so much. This is a, a, I know it's a, a sad uh, yet busy day for you, Dave. I, I really appreciate you taking some time for me today. Much, much appreciated. Great to hear your voice again. Wish it was under different circumstances. Thanks so much for stopping. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's always great to talk to you, Jeff. And, uh, you know, I miss our, we used to talk weekly, so I kind of miss that a lot. Oh, I miss it too, my friend. You be well. Okay, you too. There is uh, the great Dave Meltzer, longtime editor of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, and uh, I've said it before, and you can you can you can find the books. They're called Tributes. Uh, nobody writes better wrestling obituaries uh, than Dave Meltzer, um, who applies a journalistic standard uh, to the world of professional wrestling that is really unrivaled and without peer, and has been doing it for 
decades. And back when I used to cover wrestling, that was someone that I talked to on a daily basis uh, off the air and on the air with the uh, Live Audio Wrestling Show. Uh, good to catch up with Dave, uh, albeit on a very sad day as Kostro Vaziri passes away. You'll probably know him better as the Iron Sheik, who um, really held an interesting place in professional wrestling and in pop culture as well. His social media was brilliant. Uh, his appearances on TV shows and movies, on radio shows, uh, were legendary. You know, a lot of people, I'll, t- I'll tell the story. You know, Dave, Dave referenced a lot of like, he, he wasn't without his out of ring issues. He wasn't without his, you know, out of ring drama. And he had a lot of drug issues along the way. And I can recall, oh, what year would this have been? Oh, geez. Somewhere maybe around 99, I think it might have been. At, a, at an indie show in London, Ontario, uh, Jimmy Snuka was headlining. I don't think Sheik was working, but he was making an appearance, and he was at the autograph table uh, making a couple of extra bucks. And we were you know, behind the curtain backstage, and Sheik pulled out a pipe and said, this pipe should be in the WWF Hall of Fame, and then started rattling. And this is old, old pipe, and they just start rattling off the names of uh, of professional wrestlers that had uh, had taken halls off of the uh, the legendary Iron Sheik pipe, if you catch my drift. Um, I think we'll all miss them. Thankfully, YouTube exists, so we can go back and watch all the matches uh, and see all the interviews. I strongly encourage you to go watch the ones that he did. With, I mean, the Gene Okerlund ones are, are, are just so brilliant. Some of the ones, though, with Bob Cottle uh, and Mid-Atlantic Championship are fantastic as well when he really kind of started to pop on the uh, the pro wrestling consciousness of the uh, of the world had a really good run at mid-atlantic and canadian fans specifically toronto fans will uh, will know him for his feud uh in toronto at maple leaf gardens uh with the late angelo king kong mosca i think the blow off my memory serves would have been 82 maybe 81 cage match uh maple leaf gardens look he was a tremendous amateur athlete a legit uh, legit tough guy, legit wrestler, uh, and you can see. You know, just click on click on Iron Sheik on Twitter right now. He's a trending topic and will be for quite some time. Just to watch and see from all corners of not just professional wrestling but pop culture as well. You know who's saying what about the Iron Sheik. You know who's talking about him. Uh, who has incredible memories. You know, just clicked on uh, Mick Foley. Here's what Foley writes. Remembering the Iron Sheik, the wrestling world lost a true legend today with the passing of Khosrow Fasiri, better known to fans across the globe as the Iron Sheik. Although I never got to know the Sheik well, I was fortunate to have been on hand for two of his most iconic matches. His WWE title victory over Bob Backlund at Madison Square Garden on December 26, 1983, and his boot camp match with Sergeant Slaughter at MSG in August 1984. I also had the honor of wrestling with the Iron Sheik for the first and only time on a tour of Dominica in 1987. Kosro Fasiri was truly one of a kind. I send my deepest condolences to his family, friends, and all who loved him. Um, have a click on Twitter. Have a look. Uh, and see from all corners of the pro wrestling and entertainment world, people talking about the Iron Sheik, a sad day, the passing of Kosro Fasiri today. Uh, Matt Marchese, you got a couple of minutes here with me? Yeah. Um, you're a little bit younger than me, but did you, does Iron Sheik still resonate with you? 
firstly, I'm a lot younger than you. Secondly, um, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) he does. He does. He does because I think when you look back on, especially that feud with Hogan and the timing of it and everything, really changed wrestling because Hulk Hogan became this larger than life superstar um, that, you know, was, uh, it wasn't just wrestling. It was movies. It was, it was all this. And his popularity was due in large part to the fact that he beat a big time villain. That was the iron Sheik. So without the iron Sheik, you can maybe say that, you know, wrestling doesn't quite maybe take off like it did. And certainly Hulk Hogan doesn't become, you know, what ended up being one of the greatest careers in, in sports entertainment history. And without Hulk Hogan, there's no NWO, which ended up being a big thing when we can go back to all of this (laughs) and how super teams were formed. How about that? Uh, And you know what? One of the great things about Sheik, too, was just the look back then and the mustache. I know it might be a trivial thing, but it was just so much of the persona. Like, if you go back and you look at, you know, the clean cut, uh, buzz cut look uh, that Kosro Fasiri had when he competed because he was a legit legit amateur wrestler in the uh, the late 60s and early 70s in in Iran um is is a profoundly different look that when he when he when he got to professional wrestling i think it was jimmy snuka who was the one that recommended the uh the the mustache and the look but that was a well crafted and consistent look that uh, that the Iron Sheik had for for pretty much his his entire duration, pretty much after he left AWA and Vern Gagne's. You know, I didn't know the. It's always interesting talking to Meltzer too. I didn't know the story about Hogan, about Vern Gagne, who was by the way was the uh, the promoter and owner of the uh, American Wrestling Association, uh, offering him seventy five thousand dollars to to break Hogan's leg, a leg by the way that had already been broken when he was training with Hiro Matsuda in Florida, uh, when Hogan first broke in. But if anyone could have done it. It would have been Sheik. You know, the interesting thing about Sheik too is, uh, to those legit credentials, there are a lot of there are a lot of guys that in this quote unquote fake world of professional wrestling are legitimate tough guys and legitimate shooters. Yet I never heard any stories about Sheik taking liberties with guys. Heard it about a lot of other wrestlers. A lot of guys with legit backgrounds taking advantage of of people in the ring because you know, they just did pro wrestling and, you know, the Iron Sheik did, you know, both pro wrestling and legit amateur wrestling. Never heard any stories at all about him taking advantage of other wrestlers. And part of me, Maddie, wonders if that's because guys were scared of him. That if you tried to get funny with Sheik in this cooperative event, you would pay for it. Nonetheless, condolences to the family and the friends of Kosaro Fasiri, otherwise known as the Iron Sheik, uh, who passed away today. We're going to, um, well, you know what? We'll ask our next guest about Iron Sheik as well, and we'll get back on the, uh, on the hockey page, and we'll talk about the three-way between Columbus, the Kings, and the Philadelphia Flyers last night with Greg Wyshynski from ESPN. Uh, he joins here in a couple of moments, Andrew Brunette. I'm not sure if we're going to ask Andrew Burnett about the Iron Sheik, but maybe he'll bring it up himself. Uh, He's the head coach of the Nashville Predators. Uh, He'll join me an hour or two as well. Big second hour coming up. Thanks so much for joining me, and thank you, uh, even if you're not a pro wrestling fan, thanks for indulging me with a a conversation with uh, the great Dave Meltzer from the Wrestling Observer Newsletter there for a couple of moments on the passing of the Iron Sheik. Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network simulcast on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet Now. Back in a moment. The best Blue Jays show out there, period. 
Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So really quick here, uh, Elliot Friedman reported, well, Dan Milstein before that, uh, Dan Milstein from uh, from Gold Star, the agent for Vladislav Gavrikov, announcing a two-year extension uh, for Gavrikov with the Los Angeles Kings. And I think we we're all wondering, okay, is this number going to start with a six for Gavrikov and for the Los Angeles Kings? The answer is no. Elliot Friedman reporting it is two times 5.875. So Rob Blake keeping this one under $6 million. Still have Gabe Velarde to sign and still have a netminder uh, to go find for the Los Angeles Kings. So they continue to be one of the more interesting teams uh, to follow. And one of the most interesting people to follow this offseason, namely where is he going to land and behind uh, which bench is Andrew Burnett. He is the Nashville Predators head coach, his name last week, and he joins me now. Andrew, thanks so much for doing this. How are you today? Good, Jeff. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. Um, first of all, congratulations uh, on the nod. I think we uh, we all looked at this season and the end of the season and said, okay, where's Brunette going to end up? And we knew you were going to end up somewhere uh, on a bench. What was, uh, as a head coach, I should mention, uh, what was for you particularly attractive about Nashville? Well, I think there's a lot to be you know, obviously be attracted with their hockey team, but also I think most important was, was the relationship I had with, with Barry Trotz uh, and, and David Poyle kind of mm-hmm. stemming back 30 years ago, David drafted me in Washington and kind of played through their system for five years and then ended up in Nashville with them. And, and, and Barry had coached me through the American league and um, really gave me an opportunity to play, you know, coming out of junior being a kind of a high scorer, uh, no idea how to, probably train uh or play defense or do all those little things <laughs> so i think him, him coming in and having some patience with me and turning me into a pro um you know obviously the amount of respect i have for him for that kind of mm. mentorship you can say through those years with, with paul gardner and, and so for them if i didn't have them i never would have played pro hockey uh or in the nhl um, as a matter of fact so to, to have that relationship, but we had some great years. We won a call the cup. Um, we lost in the finals in game seven one year. And they grow up. And, and I think with Barry, a lot of the, the values mm-hmm. that he that I learned from him uh, or instilled was not just in my coaching career, but just as a person. And, and his value system, how he thinks and how he treats people are something that I, I really respected and I carry with me from that point of my mm-hmm. career on and have an opportunity to go back to work with him um, it was a no-brainer for me. You know, I, I was, I'm curious as well, with Andrew Burnett, head coach of the Nashville Predators, I, I'm curious, was there was there ever a part of you that wondered if Barry Trotz would, would ever get into management, or did you did you think, ah, Barry Trotz, he's a, he's a coach lifer? Well, I think, yeah, I, I would probably say I was a little surprised, um, but I guess when you look back at it and, and, and knowing all the different roles, he, all the hats he wore, I think even back to the, the American League in Portland, he was kind of a GM. He, he did a little bit of everything, mm-hmm. you know, basically, you know, in the American League at that time, you know, you're booking hotels, you're booking food, uh, you're going to get players, you're, you're out scouting at different times in the East Coast League trying to get guys. So I think he, he wore those hats at that level. Uh, I would probably be a little surprised because I know how much he loves um, being connected to people. And, and his players and how he treats them and with with all his different 
you know, kind of value system and what he thinks is important. He connects with so many different people. So I was a little surprised. I, I thought I talked to him last summer a little bit. He needed to decompress um, to get back going again. But he kind of said, you know, I want to coach. So it caught me a little off guard. But I guess when you look back at it, I would say it's probably not too surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, you spent a lot of time in the uh, the Eastern Conference as a coach. Uh, now coaching in the Western Conference, you played in the, the Western Conference as well. Um, I, I know you're sort of new on it, uh, new new at the job with with Nashville. But um, even in the, the the slight crossover as a coach that you've had, is there much of a difference in style between the Western Conference and the Eastern Conference, or? Are we at a place in hockey right now where it doesn't matter the conference, it doesn't matter the division, it doesn't matter the team? Hockey is hockey no matter where you're, you're playing at which conference or, or which division. I mean, great question. I, I think if you look back, I spent a lot of time in the Western Conference, probably 20 years, um, where the Western Conference yep. at different times, uh, you know, I, at least maybe – I'm being biased here, but it, it was played at, at the higher level of, of the Eastern Conference. If you went through the Colorados, the Dallas, the St. Louis, Detroit was in the West in the 2000s. Um, you had the Vancouver's, uh, you had the the Anaheim's kind of coming in, in, in the later 2000s. And, and there was teams that, to me, they, it, it was a little bit ebbs and flow of the league. And I, and I feel the last few years, I think the Eastern Conference has been a little bit deeper. It's been a little bit harder. Um, not to say that you know the West is weak by any sense, but it's kind of funny how it goes. So it, it, it's a really yeah. good question. And, and does it really matter that much anymore? I, yeah, I, I think that's. I mean, that's a great question. I'd have to put some thought into that. But I, I come in, and then maybe I'm biased because those in the East. But the East felt the last few years just a little bit deeper. Um, but I think they all go, like I said, in ebbs and flows. And the way teams now. It's probably different than any other, any other time in, in at least my generation in the game, how they can turn around from uh, from being a mediocre or, or a poor team to a playoff team. It, it, it doesn't take much. If you look at New Jersey last year, there's mm-hmm. teams that the rebuild is as fast as ever uh, with the influx of picks and young players and, and the impact the young players have in our game today compared to 10 years ago even where they needed seasoning, they, they needed time in the American League. They, they weren't quite ready. Now these kids... And it speaks all the way up through through minor hockey. I mean, they're preparing. You know, I would watch my nephew, and, the, and they're playing on one, two, two, and, and and they're they're working out all year. So I think they step into this in, into the pro world, and they're ready. And, and we haven't seen that. So I think the rebuilds yeah. are faster uh, than than we've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, I agree with that. Now you're at a place. I remember. I mean, listen, I remember having this conversation with with Patrick Waugh years ago when the the Memorial Cup was at, uh, at the Coliseum in Quebec, and you know he was having a, there was a, a disagreement on the on the draft floor. You know, Patrick wanted uh, this would have been the 2000. I want to say 15 draft, the, the Sunrise 14, draft, yeah, and yeah. they ended up taking yeah. Connor, 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 or 2014. Yeah, they took Connor Blakely from, uh, from, from Red Deer, and you know Patrick wanted a defenseman, and his logic was, look, these guys are closer to the NHL than ever before. Where once upon a time is, right. you know, you take the best player available because it's going to take three or four years until they get there. His point was, no, 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 no. These guys are closer to the NHL than ever before. A lot of it is because they're that good. A lot of it as well is because of economic necessity. But when when you look at kids now, Andrew, and whether it was, you know, your time in 
um, in Florida, your time with the New Jersey Devils. And look, you guys welcome, you know, Luke Hughes into the into the lineup in the playoffs. Um, is it true that right now, like the, the the breaking in part, I mean, that is so quick right now going from, you know, college or major junior uh, right into the NHL? Like certainly for some players, it'll take longer. But for the high end guys, like they're right there, aren't they? Yeah, it's it's really amazing. It, you know, you think back in, in my generation, which goes back to a certain date back, way back, but we never really lifted away. I played baseball all summer and, and ball hockey and never was on the ice from April to after Labor Day. And, and these kids, it's a, it's sort of, you hate to say it and it's sad to say, but it's almost a, it's a full-time job for them. Um, they're on the ice all day. They have all these different uh, coaches. And I think the eye-opener for me, probably was right around that same time I was in management in, in Minnesota and I'd go to the combine, which is actually happening right now. And you, you sit with these kids yep. and, and they're so well prepared. I, I mean, I, I would not have been able to answer any of those questions. And then you kind of dig in a little bit and, and you find out they have a stick handling coach and a shooting coach and a track coach and a skating coach. And I mean, and you're just going, Holy cow, this is the game is it's going this way. It's <laughs> turned into sort of a country club kind of game. You know, you, you would never see yeah. at the grassroots level of kids going up. And I'm not sure that'd be for a whole other show. We can argue the back and forth what's better, but, but they're ready. I mean, they're ready yeah. with the questions and they, they were prepared, but with their agents. So for me, that was an eye opener at that point, just kind of retiring probably mm-hmm. two years before that and, and not really seeing that, but then being upstairs for those years after uh, just to really, you know, like a psychiatrist, psychiatrist and, so it, it, we had to get moving with the times as as, co- as management, but also yeah. as coaches that these, these players are ready. Let, let me ask you a, a, a question about you then. Like if you had to go back and, and do it all over again. So I was, um, uh, I don't know if you remember a, a defenseman who played with the London Knights when you played at Owen Sound, a guy by the name of Daryl Rivers. So the, the reason I bring him up is um, uh, I've got a kid that plays baseball with his kid. And they're at a tournament in Oshawa, and, and me and Daryl were, were shooting off about the, the old days because I was a, a student at the University of Guelph at that time. That's when it was like Jeff O'Neill and Todd Bertuzzi and Jeff yeah, Huss and yeah, yeah. those guys. And, you know, Owens, you guys would come to Guelph and, you know, then, and you know, take two points and take everyone's per diem and go home. And you were shooting the lights out and 150 <laughs> points. So you're like, you're awesome. And we were talking, me and Daryl were talking about you, and he said, you know what, he made, and he brought up a great point. He's like, he was, was never the fastest guy, but no one knew how to do more with body positioning and had great hands, and Burnett could protect the puck, and you took that right into the NHL, and you had a really nice career. If you could do it all over again, knowing what you know now about how kids train, what the future's going, and what, what would you have done? I mean, this is, this is early 90s, but if you could do it all over again, what would you do? I mean, that's another good question. I, I don't think I would do anything different. Um, I, I, I think what allowed me to play in the game was maybe going slow and then figuring out how to play hockey. You know, I, I think I was the kid that went to the local rink and, and learned how to play at the rink, and, and you're on the ice with 40, 50 kids, and um, you were to keep the puck you had, to, or the tennis ball usually, you had to use your body and use your hands. And uh, if you wanted to have it, and of course you, uh-huh. you wanted to have it and keep it. So you learn those different skills that way. But I learned so many different skills from, from other sports. Um, you know, I played some tennis, and there you learn some, some angles and some some grit and resilience and a mental mindset and different things. I played basketball. I mean, never mm. at any good level, but I just played pickup and you learn how to use body position. You learn to give and go. You learn how to, 
you know, create some space. You know, baseball, where, where it's kind of a team sport where everybody has to have something. And I think it really worked your, your eye-hand coordination and understanding just do your job. Everybody does their job. You, you have a chance to be successful. Um, and again, a mental, you know, uh, the, you know, where you have to be mentally strong because you, you could go for four and you're going to step up in the big moment. You, you better try to find some way to, to make something happen with the bases loaded. So you learn all kinds of different mm-hmm. traits that probably you don't learn when you're working one-on-one um, with a skill guy or you're just shooting pucks for, for, for no reason. I, I think I was able to, and if I did that, I'm not sure I would have ever played because I think my personality and how I, how I, what kind of person I was, I, that would have bored me to death. I needed a little bit of everything, um, and a little everything <laughs> taught me how to play at that level. And I know this is boring. We, again, we got a whole different conversation because I put a lot of thought in that. But um, you know, over the years, but I, I don't think I could have did it. I mean, I see these kids up at five in the morning, and, and they're going to work out, and they're they're going on the ice, and they're individual, and they got you know three on three, then they got a game at night and they got summer hockey, they got fall hockey, they got, uh, you know, summer hockey, you know, um, for me, I, I needed to develop yeah. my skill set playing different sports and, and it kept my mind highly interested. Um, and, and it really gained my competitive advantage. I was doing something competitive every day. Uh, let me get to Nashville here. Let me, let me ask you about the Preds. You know, there are some coaches that, you know, when they're being interviewed for, for jobs, the first question they ask is who's our goalie. Uh, when you first started talking to, to Barry Trotz and, and David Poyle about the Nashville job, what were some of the questions you had? Well, I, I think some of the questions I had was probably, um, you know, what, what is going on uh, there a little bit? You know, I think from the outside looking in, you, you see so much talent. Um, you see yep. an inconsistent level um, and, you know, trying to get a feel of, of where they're going. Um in the future, obviously, they got a bunch of picks this year. What are their thoughts? How do they want to play? How do they envision they can play? You know, those kind of questions, I think you, you, you're kind of listening and, and learning a little bit. Um, and I'm familiar with all those players being in the front office and coaching against them. So I had familiarity of, of, of all those guys. Um, and But I think, you know, especially, you know, you got a goaltender. You know, you got a Norris uh, Trophy winning defenseman. Um, so, you, so, you, so you kind of a feeling, but I think there's a lot more that goes into just just what's going on personnel-wise. How do they how do they mesh? What's the culture there? How do we get better? Uh, what is? Uh, I'm always curious to how how people answer this question. I'll, I'll end on this one. Um, what do you want people to know about you as a head coach? Um, you know, we've seen you behind the bench with uh, the Florida Panthers. Uh, we saw you with Lindy Ruff with the New Jersey Devils. We're about to see you on the bench with the Nashville Predators. What do you What do you think you that What do you think people should know about you as they as they watch you behind the bench in Nashville? <laughs> That's a tough question. Uh, what I, I would. <laughs> Geez, you got me stumped there. Um, I would want to see, you know, I, th- I think kind of what I'd, I'd want to leave the impression or, or leave somebody that watched any any of our games is that I'm connected. Um, I'm connected to our players. I'm connected to the game. Um, I think I want to make sure my guys are having fun and they're enthusiastic of whatever I'm selling and the style of hockey that I like to play. You know, I love to see a smile on their face. I love that they're, you know, what I want my players is kind of happiness. I want them to enjoy the game. And I think if you enjoy the game, at least my 
all my years playing, coaching, players play the best when, when they enjoy I mean, I'm sure if you went to work and if people weren't enjoying, they're not going to give you your best product or they're not going to give you the best job. Yeah. And I think when I've been around teams, if, if guys are enjoying it, they're having fun, they're going to perform better, they're going to want to be uh, more, of a, more of a team, they're going to give a lot more up themselves if they're enjoying it. So an enjoyment is, is, is not tee-heeing and, and giggling and laughing. I think enjoyment is that you're excited about the process of, of growing, of being better, of getting better together. And that process it brings that kind of the enjoyment level. So I think for me, I, out of my players and out of the team that you're going to watch, and, and, and I guess that if you're talking about me, I'd like to see that of it, that we're, we have some, we're going we're gonna to enjoy what we're doing. And we're going to enjoy it together and we're going to be connected doing it, I guess. See, I think that's a great answer. <laughs> Honestly, like, I, I love, <laughs> yeah, I love asking I that one because I, I, I never know when I'm going to get back. And that was a, that's a great one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, listen, Andrew, uh, all, all the best. I, I wish you all the success. Um, listen, from, from day one, and I've been consistent about this. I've said this from day one of the Nashville Predators. Uh, this has been a first-class operation. Uh, this has been, I got from top to bottom at every single level, this has been, you know, uh, a really accommodating organization from my perch. It's been a first-class organization. I think everyone uh, in the league is going to see uh, this year when, when the Predators host the draft um, just how wonderful this organization is. And so you've landed in a great spot. Uh, and I wish you all the success next season with the Preds. Thanks so much for stopping by today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, Jeff. Anytime. There he is, Andrew Burnett, the head coach of the Nashville Predators, uh, takes over from John Hines. Uh, John Hines, we wonder about with teams like the New York Rangers, who still have a vacancy. We wonder about Peter Laviolette there as well. And maybe... Maybe we should start wondering about, you know, as the days go on here and there isn't a coaching announcement, maybe we should start to wonder a little bit more about Patrick Waugh with the uh, New York Rangers and there is the association there through the Colorado Avalanche uh, and a certain Stanley Cup uh, between Chris Drury uh, and Patrick Waugh. So uh, thanks to the Nashville Predators for making Andrew Burnett available um, and thanks to Andrew for taking some time uh, today. He really was, by the way. If you if you never saw him play in junior, and this is the the early '90s, uh, he was playing with the Owen Sound Attack, and he wasn't again to be kind. He wasn't the most fleet of foot, but he's someone who was always up around the top of the OHL scoring leader list. Uh, no one protected the the puck better. Eh, maybe Allison in London, but I'll still take uh, I'll still take Burnett in that fight. Um, he was. Maybe not the most sudden player, but he's one of those guys that shift in, shift out, on a shift, protected the puck, incredible hands. Oh, and by the way, just as a uh, just as a as a quick note, there just mentioned Patrick Waugh a second ago. It was the Minnesota Colorado series. After that, Patrick Waugh retired, and Andrew Burnett scored the final goal on Patrick Waugh before he called it a career. So there'll always be that association uh, with those two players. Anyway, wishing Andrew Burnett all the best with the National Predators. Um, and we'll stand by now for game three. That is the next major event, uh, barring another three way trade. I'm not sure what Daniel Breer has up his sleeve or Yarmo Kikalainen. Uh, or Rob Blake, but uh, we'll see now that the, the trade season uh, is well upon us. It seems as if it's kind of started early uh, this year, but with a with a very much flat cap. I mean, this thing's going to get a bump by like a million bucks, folks. Teams need to start to be creative, and the, Florida, the Philadelphia Flyers indicating that for real, the rebuild is on. 
They've talked about it previous, previous, but now they are legit going for it. And you saw that with the trade yesterday. Thanks to a number of people here. Just thanked Andrew Burnett from the National Predators. I want to thank Greg Wyshynski from ESPN. Uh, Dave Meltzer for stopping by from the, uh, the, the the Wrestling Observer newsletter on the passing of the Iron Sheik. Little hockey detour there into the world of professional wrestling, folks. Thanks so much for indulging me. And uh, Elliot Friedman from 32 Thoughts and Hockey Night in Canada. And the real brain trust the, the, the real brain trust of this program, Matt Marchese, Lance Kennedy, and Jen Rolnick as well. They speak better than me too. Gonna go rest my tongue now, back in 22 hours.